0: to giving financially, please visit our website, senecabaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. On Monday, Christopher and I went to visit Miss Linda Casso. Uh, we heard Sunday night, really late, that she wasn't expected to live very much longer, and so. Early Monday morning, Christopher and I headed out down to Atlanta to Emory Hospital to go visit, and when we did, we arrived about 9.45, and uh, we come into Miss Linda's room uh, with she and her family, and we're just sitting at her bedside, and we... um, She's not well, and the doctors all, and their nurses all are talking about those last moments. Um, and it was, it, was, it was an incredible place to be. Uh, it was a holy place to be. And um, as, we, as we sat there for a little while, we began to pray, and her, her blood pressure was really low already. But as we began to pray, her blood pressure went from uh, 60 over 40 to 33 over 16. And we knew. I gave Christopher the nod. Christopher gave me the nod back and we excused ourselves. And it wasn't about five minutes later that she transitioned to glory. And it was a holy moment. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody as they inhaled their last breath in this world or exhaled their last breath in this world and inhaled their last breath in eternity, but it's a holy moment. There's a moment in Scripture where God comes to His people on the mountain. And the holiness of God descends on the mountain. And when God's holiness descends on the mountain, it's fire, it's rumblings of thunder, it's lightning, it's smoke. And in that moment, God's people stood on holy ground and they were there because God had a word for the people of God. Because in that moment, God was going to make a covenant with his people. God was going to make them his chosen people, his royal priesthood, a treasured possession, and God was going to give them the law. They were on holy ground. God says, consecrate yourselves before you come to the mountain. And so here in Exodus chapter 20, I want us to feel the weight of God's holiness. That God is, as as the angels say, the angelic beings say, He is threefold holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so today we want to come to the Word of God with that kind of reverence at the holiness of God. He is love, amen. He is merciful. He is, he is a Savior, but He is also holy. And that's what makes Him such a great Savior, is because He's perfectly holy in all His ways. So if you would turn in your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 6, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So let me just share with you where we're going over the next, uh, this fall. This fall we'll be back in the book of Exodus. We've made it to Exodus chapter 20 so far. We'll be back in the book of Exodus. And we're going to be looking over the next handful of weeks at the Ten Commandments through uh, September and October. And then in November we're going to come to a series that we're going to call Shadows, Shadows, because we've been learning in the book of Hebrews that the Old Testament things are a shadow of the substance. And the substance is who? Jesus. Jesus is the substance. And we're going to look at some of those shadows in the Old Testament and look forward to how Jesus is the fulfillment. And then we're going to be in December and we're going to stop looking at the shadows and we're going to look at the light of the world who has come into darkness. And so I'm excited about our fall. Uh, that's where we're going to be going over the next handful of months. Now, we're coming to the Ten Commandments, or the law of God, as it's referred to so many times throughout the scripture, and here's what I want you to understand about the Ten Commandments, okay? So let's just step back for a second, big uh, look, and then we're going to dive into the first two commandments, okay? So big look is, in the Ten Commandments, you see two tables of the law, okay? There's one that goes this way, up to God, and then there's one that goes this way between man and man. So uh, there is a relational um, uh, table this way, vertically, uh, and then there's a relational table horizontally. And so you see 1 through 4, all Godward, and 5 through 10 are manward. And number 5 is the kind of the transitional uh, commandment in the 10. Number 5 is. And so Jesus says, um, probably the most... Uh, succinct summary of the law in two commands. Do you remember uh, one of the Pharisees or Sadducees or one of the lawyers? I can't remember who it was right now. Came to him and said, uh, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying the law is important and it's summarized in love God And love your neighbor, love God and love your neighbor, and so that's what we see in this law in the Ten Commandments. We see one through four up to God and toward God, and uh, five through ten are toward man. Now, the purpose of the law. Now, oftentimes we think about the purpose of the law is we got to obey them. We got to obey them. Now, is it true that we ought to obey them? Of course. But the question is, is the purpose of the law to save us? Like, did God uh, sit in heaven as the Trinity gathers the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit into a holy huddle after the fall, and He goes, okay, plan A didn't work, let's give them plan B, let's give them these Ten Commandments, and hopefully they can earn their way into heaven. Was that God's intention in the law? No. God's intention in the law was never to be uh, a way for salvation. Why is that? Because we have never kept the entire law a single day in our lives. Never. Now, if it's depend, our salvation is dependent on how well we keep the law. We're all in big, big trouble. Amen. And James takes it even farther. James says, "Listen, if you break one of the commandments, you break them all." You're like, "Well, doggone! I thought I was doing pretty good today. I was nine out of ten until James said something." Right? We can't keep the law. We can't. So the purpose of the law is not to save us. But rather, the purpose of the law is to reveal our lostness. To show us how broken we are. To show us the motivations of our heart. To show us how flawed we are and how deeply you and I need a Savior. And the purpose of the law is not just to show us how much we need one, but it's to point to the Savior. There is a Savior. And the book of Galatians said that the law held us in prison until Christ came to set us free. Galatians says that the law was our guardian or our teacher until Jesus came to make us sons and daughters. And so the law was to point to a Savior because who is the only man who has ever kept the entire law for his entire life? Jesus Christ. And so that's why we can be saved. Not just because Jesus died for us, but because that He kept the law for us, died for our sin, His perfection accredited into our account, and our sin put onto His account. It's to point to a Savior. Now, as we read the law, there are the Ten Commandments, and then if you keep on reading the book of Exodus, or how many of you have ever tried to read the book of Leviticus, and you're like, what in the world is the deal with Leviticus? Right? Right? So, in the book of Leviticus, or in the book of Exodus, we see three kinds of laws, okay? So, there's the moral law. The moral law is the standard by which mankind will be judged. It's the standard for our ethics and our life. It's a standard. That moral law is uh, good for all cultures at all times throughout all history And that is the moral law. Then there's the civil law. The civil law was how the nation of Israel was governed. Was how they were governed at that specific place, and that specific time. And even Israel itself does not govern itself today the way that the Bible says then. And then there's the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law, if you read the book of Leviticus, is if this happens, you have to provide this offering or this sacrifice and it's this is how you're clean before God and this is how you worship God. This is how you maintain your righteousness and how He wants to be worshipped. Now, have you ever wondered to yourself, why do we pick and choose? Why are there some laws that we keep and some laws that we don't? Why is it that Christians today don't keep the laws about shellfish? Like we eat shrimp. Praise the Lord. And, and then why do we not keep the laws about bacon? Because as Christians, we eat bacon. Praise the Lord. If you do not, we are praying for your salvation today. And better yet, we eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. Why is it that we, we don't keep those laws... But we do keep the laws such as adultery or homosexuality or the Sabbath or using the Lord's name in vain. Why is it that some that we keep and some that we don't? And what we need to understand is that there's different kinds of God's law. Moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. Moral law governs our lives today. Civil law does not govern us because we do not live in the state of Israel. We are not the nation of Israel. And the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Jesus. But we are under that moral law. And the law was given to convict us of sin. Also to restrain us from sin. And as a standard by how we live. Now, if Exodus chapter 19, I want you just in your Bible, grab it real fast and go to verse 5 and 6. Verse 5 says now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. Verse 6 says and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now now in in, in the Old Testament that's kind of like the great commission or this is the mission of God's people at that point in time. Exodus chapter 19 verse 5 and 6. Now if that's the mission then Exodus chapter 20 is one of the is the great commandment. So this is the great commission and this is the great commandment. Or in other words, this is the mission of God's people and this is kind of the how-to instructions about how to keep that mission, how to be on mission. Now, what we need to see is how this starts. The 10 commandments start this way. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. It's called the preamble. The preamble, just like we have the preamble of our Constitution, this is the preamble of the Ten Commandments, okay? Look at verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, here's what's interesting when you read that in its original language. So we think about Lord and God, we think about those as kind of interchangeable, but they are different words, okay? So in verse 1 it says, And Elohim spoke all these words, saying... Elohim. Now, Elohim is how the Bible begins. In the beginning, Elohim. It's how the Bible begins. It's speaking to that this is the God who is the creator and sustainer and life giver of all things. You and I. And then, in verse 2, it goes on and says, I am the Lord, your Elohim. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I'm Yahweh. Now, in Genesis chapter 2... When God creates his people and puts them in a garden, Genesis chapter 2 begins to initiate this kind of relationship that God wants to have with his people. And in Genesis 2, he reveals himself as Yahweh. Now, when uh, Moses goes up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 3, and God says uh, to Moses, go back to Egypt and set them all free. and, 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 And Moses says, if I go and tell them that God sent me, What's your name? Who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them that who sent you. I am. I am. And what he said in the Hebrew language is, tell them Yahweh sent you. I am the great I am. I'm the great uncaused cause. I am the fire that needs no fuel. I am the eternal one. I am God alone. And so what we see in this passage is that he reveals himself himself. In, as Creator, and He reveals Himself in a relational way and as Redeemer. Redeemer. And then He comes into this, this law, and he, it's essentially He's saying, I'm giving you the law because I'm God. Because I, I created you, and I know how life works best. I know how humanity flourishes. And so in keeping my law, humanity will flourish. I love you. I have redeemed you, and I have made you to be my people, my kingdom, my priests, and you shall be to me a holy nation. And so therefore, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see what he's doing there? He's telling them who he is. He's reminding his people of what he's done, that he's creator and redeemer. That he is both our father and the one who is in heaven. Do you remember the Lord Jesus taught us to pray our Father in heaven? It's this idea. He is Elohim, and He is Yahweh. He is personal, and, and, and He is powerful. He is infinite, and He is intimate. And because of that, I give you my law. The first one is don't have any other gods before me. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or uh, or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. So he gives them in verses 3 and 4 a worship responsibility. A worship responsibility. In other words, don't have any other gods before me worship me alone. Now, we sin against two or sin against God two ways in this commandment. I mentioned this a handful of months ago. We sin against God two ways in this commandment. One, is that we worship other gods. If When we worship other gods, we sin against the one true living God. Now, secondly, we sin against Him when we do not worship Him. Most times we think about, well, I don't have any other gods other than Him, so therefore I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. But often we don't think about how God has given Himself to us that we might worship him and we sin against him when we do not worship him and now let me tell you worship is not singing worship is singing but it's so much more than singing it's not simply singing so we would define good worship a lot of different ways right when the right songs come on when it when the feeling comes in i felt it this morning you ever said something like that i have It's okay to feel something, but that's not what defines good worship, right? It's not passion, hands raised, intensity, reverence. I mean, we define worship in a lot of different ways. They weren't loud enough. They were too loud. They weren't passionate enough. They were too passionate. I like old songs. I like new songs. We sang a song from the 1700s today and the 2020s. Worship isn't worship because you got the right songs. Worship is worship when I got the right object of worship. So what what defines good worship is right belief or, or right theology about the right object of worship. Worship is good when I give to him the worship that he deserves. that's why psalm twenty nine says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. He is due it. And we were created for it. Isaiah 43, 7 says that, that you and I were created for God's glory. God determines how we ought to worship Him and God is worthy of worship and we sin against Him when we worship anything above Him or besides Him or before Him and we sin against Him when we don't worship Him rightly or when we don't worship Him at all. And then in verse 3, it's kind of, He kind of gives us worship regulations. And so we see this right here, worship regulations, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. Now most of us would look at that commandment and go, I'm, I don't have any idols in my house. Because what we think about is we, we think about a, a, a carved image, a, a piece of something, metal, wood, stone, that is set up in our house that we're bowing down to every day. And that's what idol worship is. That's what we would call idol worship. And so we, we would go, well... I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. But, but ancient peoples would create gods and carry them with them into battles. And every be- battle, in, a se- in essence, kind of became a battle of the gods. That This god was fighting against this god. And we see that in the Old Testament. It's the god of the Philistines, Dagon, uh, versus the one true living god who makes Dagon fall down and worship before the Ark of the Covenant. And we, we see those things. Now, he says, essentially, don't be like the other nations who create a God in an image, carry it with them in th- into battle, that you are identified as this. Don't be like the other nations. Remember, you're a holy nation. That means you're a people set apart and altogether different than all the nations around you. Don't be like them. Now, it, why? Because God, our Creator, God has no form. God has no form one of the catechism questions that we ask our kids is, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. Now, think about it. Think about how God has revealed Himself thus far to the people of Israel, and and this is how He's revealed. A fire on a mountain. A fire on a mountain. A pillar of cloud or pillar of fire. There's no form given. No form given. Why? Because if God would have revealed himself in a form, what would mankind have had the tendency to do? Carve it and worship it. And it doesn't take us long in the book of Exodus to find out that even though that God had not given them a form, they still accidentally throw their earrings and rings into the fire and out pops a, what, a golden calf, and they bow down and worship it. And they say, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. Right? Mankind has a tendency, and don't we have a tendency to worship what we see rather than what we don't? Don't we often say to God, God, I just wish I could see You. Because it'd be easier if we were the apostles that could see You. Like, if we were walking with You, if You were right here with us, it'd be easier for me to keep my faith. And God says, no, 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 no. Faith walks by faith not by sight. So let's talk about this idolatry thing for a second. Okay, idolatry. Don't don't worship, don't give glory to that which is not God. Now, remember, let's go back a few weeks, let's remind ourselves that we were created for God's glory. That is the ultimate why behind the what. Why do you exist? You exist for God's glory. God's glory. And what does glory mean? Glory could be described as weight and worth and worship. It's what is weighty in your life. It is what is of value in your life, and it is what you worship. Worth, weight, worship. Now, Vodibakam says, and I think we've got this on the screen, that idolatry is ascribing godlike power or godlike worth to something or someone. Now, most of us wouldn't wake up in the morning and say, who or what can I ascribe godlike worth or value to? But remember that idols don't have to be carved in wood or stone. Oftentimes they're carved first in our heart. Now, how do I know if I have idols or I'm worshiping other gods? How do I know? Let's let's answer some questions for us. Mr. James, I think we've got a screen with some questions. Now, I just want you to sit with these for a second. Let's ask what values guide your decision making? it reveals, answering a question like this, reveals what our God is, practically. What sets your priorities? What drives you in life? What what is your identity found in? I just realized that didn't sound right, so where is your identity found What is the thing that you want, that if you get that thing, it will finally make you whole? If this happens, then I can finally be joyful. Or if this happens, then I'll finally have enough. Or if this happens, then I'll finally be satisfied. If this thing or that thing, if I can get it then. What's the that? What is that thing? Where do you find security? Whose voice or opinion carries the greatest weight in your life? Who, whose approval do I, I try so hard to receive? See, when we talk about idols, and you talk about a little carved thingy that I've got on the mantle of, above the fireplace, and I don't bow down to worship one of those, so therefore I'm not an idolater, but when we ask ourselves practical questions like this, what we learn is that we have things in our life that we uh, elevate to a kind of a godlike status. a godlike worth. Augustine says it this way, it's up on the screen. Augustine says, now Augustine's like in the, the fourth century, okay? Augustine says idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought, be worshiped that's good right there idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped now when we pray are we using god to get what we really want is christian is this christian life or christianity for you is it to get you to the end goal of something that is ultimate value because if, if you are in this Christian faith to, to have X, y and Z, if it's whether it's to have forgiveness or to have a peace or if it's to have joy or if it's to get to heaven or if it's anything other than getting God, then what you've done is you've created an idol out of something that God has given you as a gift. Now Tim Keller, says it this way, he says, anytime we make a a good thing a God thing, that's a bad thing. Did you catch that? Anytime we make a good thing a God thing, that's a bad thing. And that's what idolatry is. When we take a good thing that God gives to us and we make it a God thing, that's a real bad thing. And we see this played out in scriptures all throughout the Bible. I want you to think about it. Genesis chapter 1, God creates them. Genesis chapter 2, He puts them in the garden, and they're naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide from God. Genesis chapter 3, what did they do? Well, they quickly decided to give themselves over to idolatry. We know better than God. And they were looking at pleasure, and they were looking at satisfaction, and they were looking at being full And so they gave greater weight and worth to something else other than God and what He said. And the Bible continues down a path of idolatry. And we will see that idolatry always corrupts those who give themselves to it. It always corrupts us. It dehumanizes us from the image of God that we were created in. When we give ourselves to worship... Anything other than God alone, it does not add value to our life but detracts it. It takes away from us, it steals from us that which God wants us to truly be satisfied in, which is Him and Him alone. And and through the Bible, what we see is exactly what Augustine says worshiping something that's meant to be used and using something that's meant to be worshiped. We do it in our culture. Sex, pleasure, my rights, my feelings, we worship them, we elevate them, that I am what I feel. I am not what God created me to be, but rather I am what I feel. We do it in our culture. But guess what? We do it in our churches. We worship buildings and people. We elevate programs, generations. And in doing so, it does not make us into the people that God wants us to be, but it dehumanizes us. It takes away from who God wants us to be. We say, you can't worship if you worship this way. You can only worship in a set way. This is the only program that we can do. This is the way that ministry looks or church looks. And what we've taken is something that God is not clear on, and we've elevated it to something that's law. We do it. And it leads the human race to corruption. And it's a corruption that's so great that only God can come to restore. And that's why Jesus came on the scene. Jesus came on the scene to reveal the idols in our heart. He did. And just think about some of these stories. We're going to look at one of them. But think about the woman at the well. Do you remember the woman at the well? Uh, Jesus shows up. Uh, he had to go through Samaria and he had to because there was this woman. He had a divine encounter with this woman at the well. He goes there and he asks her for a drink of water. Who are you, to, a Jew, to ask for me, a Samaritan, a drink of water? Um, and, and, uh, and he says something very interesting to her. He says, go call your husband. Do you remember this? And, and she says, I don't have a husband. You're right. You're right. You've had five, and the one that you're with right now, he's not your husband. Go get him. She goes, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. It's funny, right? I perceive you're a prophet. What's Jesus getting at? He's getting it at her idols. John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000, and then the following day they come back for another meal. And he says, you didn't come back for me, you came back for food. Don't look for food that won't satisfy. Look for food from heaven. Well, give us that food. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You come to me and you eat of me and you'll never die. The prodigal son and the elder brother both had idols. The prodigal son wanted the father's money to go and squander it on fun living. He wanted all the pleasures of uh, he moving to New York City, man. You know what I'm saying? He's going to Vegas with all that money. The older brother stays on the farm. And he works himself to death. And at the end of the story, he reveals his idol. That younger, that son of yours, he squandered it all. And I've worked here, and I've, I've, I've sweated, and I've, I've served you, and you haven't given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Have you ever been in one of those moments where you said what you really meant and it came out and you said, I can't believe I just said that. That really revealed the motive of his heart. And Jesus came to show us what our idols are. There's a story in in Mark chapter 10, and we have it on the screen. It's it's about the rich young ruler. Do You remember there's a man that comes and says, good teacher. What must I do to, be, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Now, what did he do? He just quoted the, the last from 5 to 10. What verses or what commandments did he leave out? 1 through 4. Why? Well, this is what happens. What happens on the next slide? It says, as he was, or he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. You liar, right? You ever read the Bible and gone, he couldn't have kept all those things? He says, All these I've kept since my youth, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing? Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will be you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What was his idol? Possessions. Why did Jesus not, quote, talk about one through four? Because he wanted to reveal it to him. This is your idol. This is what you've put before me. This is what you really worship. And Jesus came to restore us to worshiping the one true God and to set us free from the grip of idolatry. I want you to go back to the word in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We see three things in this passage. One is that God is jealous. Two is that God is just. And three is that God is merciful. Now, oftentimes we look at jealousy and we think, well, you've maybe said this before. Jealousy is not a good look on you, right? If you ever raised children and they're jealous of one another, jealousy is never a good look. But God's jealousy is different than our jealousy. Why? Because God's jealousy is attached to His great love for His people. Now, if, if a man had a wife, and the wife went out and gave to another man what rightfully belonged to the husband, does that husband have a right to be jealous and that jealousy be righteous? Mm -hmm. If a husband went out and gave to another woman that which is only reserved for his wife, can his wife have a righteous jealousy? Yes! Yes! because of love and how much more does our heavenly father our creator and our redeemer how much more jealous is he of us because of his great love for us to be jealous for our worship he's not jealous of us he is jealous for us do you see the difference He knows what's best for us. He knows how we flourish. He knows why we were created. And any time when we live outside of His design, He is jealous for that worship. He's a jealous God. He will not share His glory nor give it to another. He is just. He is just regarding our idolatry. Do you see it? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. He will not let that go unpunished in you or me or anybody else. He cannot let idolatry go unpunished. That's bad news, isn't it? Because you've probably seen in your heart what I see in my heart is that I'm an idolater. And and it's because His justice is attached to love. His anger, His wrath is attached to love. Now let's be honest. We don't often think about anger and love going hand in hand, but it's true. If somebody were to hurt someone that you love, what would your response be? Anger. Is there a place for righteous anger? Yes. The Bible even says, be angry and do not sin. There is a place for righteous anger. And God's righteous anger is right. It is perfect. It is holy because of His great love for us. And He cannot let sin go unpunished. But He is also merciful. He's jealous, He's just, and He's merciful. Do you see it? But showing steadfast love to thousands. Now, how is it that God can be jealous, just, and merciful all at once? You, you need to look no further than the cross. On the cross, God shows His jealousy, His justice, and His mercy. That His justice is satisfied. His anger is poured out. Where? On the cross. On Jesus. God's perfect justice is emptied out. And that's why Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Why? So that He might be merciful to us through Jesus. He is, he is jealous, just, and righteous. And we see it on the cross. See, salvation is God saving us from the punishment of idolatry. And sanctification that the ongoing process of being made like Jesus, that is saving us from the grip of idolatry. On the cross, once and for all and forever, He saves us from the punishment of being idolaters. And every day as we walk with Him and as we know Him, and as we choose to love Him and we surrender to Him, what He's doing is He's reordering the loves of our heart day by day through the power of the Holy Spirit so that the grip of idolatry is loosed from the Christian life. Are you with me? Amen. So do you get saved and immediately stop being an idolater? No. That's what sanctification's for. And as Christians, that's our goal is to daily encounter God in such a powerful way that we come into His presence, the presence of the living God in such a tangible way every day that the idols in our lives are exposed and we abandon them for what we see as the one true living God who can satisfy. So make it really practical. Okay? So those two commands undergird all the rest of the commands. All right, So, practical. So, no idols, no other gods, Everything else kind of hinges on that. On those two. Why? Can we worship God and murder our brothers by hate or by hands? No. Because what we've said is there's another thing that is driving me other than God. It's my motivation other than God. We can't murder hate by hate or by hands. Can we worship the one true God and commit adultery in heart and action? No. Can we worship the one true God and steal? No. Because what we're revealing is there is something else underneath the surface that motivates me to action. Can I worship the one true God and bear false witness? No. Because there's something else motivating me. There's something else that I'm more afraid of. There's something else that I want the approval of. And so I'm working at that rather than working for God. Can covetousness and right uh, and righteousness or and right worship be yoked together? No. I can't covet something and worship God in the same breath. Now, I put this phrase up here. I want you to see it, and this is how we're going to end today. God, as Creator and Redeemer, is worthy of all our worship. Maybe you tuned me out. You fell asleep. I apologize about that. I, I have a way of putting people to sleep. But you're welcome. But if you, don't, if you didn't hear anything else, listen to this. God as Creator and Redeemer is worthy of all our worship. And our worship is our response to the saving work of Jesus and is worked out in every aspect of our lives. We must, wor- we must, have, or we must worship Him alone and we must worship Him rightly. We must worship Him alone. We must worship Him rightly. We're going to sing one last closing song. And as we do, maybe you want to respond. Maybe you just want to come and you want to kneel at the altar and say, Father, I have seen my heart and the idols in it. And I want to renounce them. I want to repent of that idolatry. And I want to give you all my worship. Show me that you satisfy Show me that there's nothing else that can meet the needs like you can. Show me, Father, so that I might abandon them and help the grip of idolatry to be loosed through the power of the gospel. Maybe you need to get saved today because you don't know if you would go to heaven or not. And it's not because you are a good person. It's because Jesus was. So today you can abandon your good works, which is idolatry. Righteousness by works is idolatry. And you can come trust in what Christ and Christ alone has done for you on a cross and in an empty tomb. Maybe you want to join the church. Today's your, this is your opportunity. Would you stand with me? Christopher? Miss Margaret? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a... Mm. Father, forgive us where we fall short, where we worship other things, where we let other motivations come in. Father, forgive us when we do not worship you rightly or we do not worship you at all. Forgive us when in other places is our joy, security, happiness, identity, whatever it might be. When when those things motivate us more than you do or your word does, forgive us. Father help us by your grace to abandon them and to live for you. Father, let our church be a place of people who have laid down all of the idolatry in our lives and are seeking to walk with Jesus day by day, moment by moment. Let us we're not trying to be perfect, Lord, but we want to be more like you. If there's anybody here who's lost, Father, save them today. Work among us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you respond as the Lord leads you.